What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of the one, the only, Mr. Gilbert Godfrey. I encourage all of you to go out and cut up some orange slices in his arm. episode of see here 96 we're getting up there almost at the pinnacle 100 today we're going to do something a little bit different usually you're uh, used to listening to the dulcet tones of our brother from another mother morris morris today he's off at a john hyatt lookalike contest so um he couldn't be here unfortunately with us this easter weekend so here it's just myself and my other brother from another mother bath england mr bernard stickwell hey tim how goes it Good. Today, uh, Bernie and I are going to be delving into a film from the Wayback Machine from the 1980s. We're going to be looking at, is it 82? Um, I think it actually might be 81. Erga Music War. It's an interesting delve and, you know, you'll hear more as we go on. And we're also going to talk about the British end of things with the ska movement with another film in comparison. So we're going to get into that as well. So we're going to play the trailer now for Erg. That should get a little taste of uh, what that is all about, and we'll be back with you shortly. Give me some rhythm! I need some rhythm! Hey, man. What is this place? It's the rhythm I need! Suppose they gave a music war. I need this! And everybody came. And this one is full of moral fiber. And they kept on coming. Welcome to 
34 bands and we'll never play the brawl. Thirty-five score that you'll never hear in an elevator. Music war. This time they've gone too far. Egg. A movie. Maybe, maybe this time they've gone too far. Oh, before we start, Tim, I just want to let the listeners know that uh, even though Morris couldn't make it today, he did speak to our good friend Skiz Sizik, maker of the Tim Lane documentary, uh, about Erg Music War, because uh, Skiz has been working on and off on a, a little documentary about Erg over the last 20 years, apparently. So uh, Morris has recorded a little chat with Skiz, which we will be playing at the end of the programme once Tim and I have finished voicing our opinions here. So uh, you've got that to look forward to, people. As far as I know from what I could find about information on the Erg is that it was kind of uh, put together somewhat in England and uh, it was put together in conjunction with the work of Miles Copeland who was uh, managing the police at the time and he had the music rights for the longest time because when this came out this it was hard to get a hold of this film for a long time because no one was really sure who held the rights. The company that had put it out had gone out of business. Uh, the original release of Erg on Laserdisc or DVD, I think. And then, you know, it was one of those things where it just kind of fell between the cracks. As I understand it, Tim, uh, and I think Skiz and Morris talk a little bit about this, it was something to do with performance rights. Right, versus electronic. Well, yeah, and it, and it was basically, I think, uh, either Miles Copeland or the company that had purchased the rights from him or whatever had rights to show the film on certain formats 
months. Right. But since video is no longer an accepted format, it's, you know, been consigned to the dustbin of history. There was some confusion, which is apparently ongoing, as to rights when it comes to DVD, Blu-ray, streaming and so forth. So, right. But I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you might know this, Tim, but I think the whole thing is actually on Canopy. So you can see it if you can access Canopy. But uh, not just Canopy, actually. You can find it on archive.org. Okay, yeah. This film actually had a theatrical run initially, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. And basically what it is, is it's a collection of about 30 30 plus some odd um, different artists. So it's almost, if you can imagine, a visual mixtape from the 80s, early 80s. And it gives a pretty wide uh, range of, of the variety of music that was coming out of the time. And I think one thing that needs to be clarified is that this is not just a quote-unquote punk film. This is more of a wider, far wider range than that. And this is, you know, what was considered at the time to be new wave. That's kind of the sticking point in a way, isn't it? Because, you know, how, how do you define the term new wave? But yeah, it, it's new music, isn't it? It's interesting new music that's different from the norm it's alternative well, yeah <laughs> i guess new wave is the uh the 80s version of that isn't it right yeah right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but yeah you know you've got you got acts as different as steel pulse and Klaus Nomi in this and you know you couldn't get any further apart no no in terms of, of style and content but it makes sense in this context you know growing up not catching the initial beginning of punk but growing up through enough of of the second phase of it i would actually argue and say that what is displayed in this film through all the different artists is closer to the initial concept of punk than what punk was to become i would agree with that yeah i think that's an interesting statement and but i would totally agree with that what i mean is that punk initially was just do whatever the hell you want to do find your path and follow it and out of that came some ska that we're going to get into a lot of it came into like rockabilly country billy like for example x and the blasters and that kind of thing there was the whole electronic thing yeah you know like for example bands like suicide again it's a very broad term but what is now known as indie independent uh, certainly in the uk it's indie or i suppose i don't know college rock would be like the 80s right. term in uh, in the states and canada maybe but i, I suppose you know people like Wall of voodoo or those kind of artists would kind of fit into that category at this point we're going to get into it when we go over the performers but some of the music that is in this film that still holds up through the test of time but then there's some of it where i'm thinking <laughs> no you know, holy shit man like you couldn't even get arrested today playing that yeah totally we should point out at this uh, stage as well that when we get into talking about the uh, performers and performances we are talking purely about our own personal opinions here and uh sure <laughs> let's sure. hope we don't put anybody's nose out of joint <laughs> no 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 but i mean it's just through a skewed lens but still so tim where did you when did you first become aware of erga music war when was the first time you saw it well i think we used to have what they called in the 80s pay television mm-hmm. there was pay, pay tv channels and we had a channel called first choice and i remember seeing this on first choice 
And then I remember seeing it again, or bits and pieces of it. There used to be a show called The All Night Show in the 80s, yeah. where it was kind of a funny thing, where there was this guy, Chaz Lowther, where he played a security guard, and he was like a security guard at a TV studio, overnight watching the whole building. And while they weren't, you know, nobody was there, he'd start messing with the editing equipment and stuff, and he started broadcasting what he wanted to watch. <laughs> so then there was clips of this in The All Night Show. I remember seeing the cramps on there and Gang of Four, and yeah, I'd say early, like, early 80s or okay. you know, 84 85 so only a few years after it uh, initially right. came out yeah because this wasn't the kind of thing that it went over gangbusters mm-hmm. i really think your music war went over like a fart in church to tell you the honest truth i don't think it actually got a massive obviously it was shown in in uh, cinemas but i don't think it had a massive release at the time and i think it just kind of slipped out on video fairly quietly well they have those midnight screenings you know these sure. oh, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, but you can't earn back your packet for what you put into it from mm-hmm. midnight screen but here's something to be said about this though because i don't know if you knew this bernie but they actually released the soundtrack to this a year before the film came out yeah i i had heard that in a way it was kind of a smart move because you get everybody you know sussed on all the music and then to go out and see mm-hmm. the film the, the visual that goes along with you know you already know this the music i mean the film is to a certain extent a showcase for artists who are on perhaps a and and IRS those like what IRS particularly was uh, Miles Copeland Stuart Copeland's brother was quite strongly right. involved and so it kind of makes sense that they put the LP out there first or at least you know that they, they assembled the film with the idea of the LP in mind as well or vice versa right, right. you know it, it certainly stands up as a film it's a lot of fun but you can kind of perhaps think of them seeing it as a tool to sell records more than it was sure. to promote the film you know right 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 most films that came out with a soundtrack Mm -hmm. the soundtrack was basically released in conjunction with the film sure yeah yeah and this was like one of the few times I actually saw that it, it was a different thing. I think there's a couple of cuts of the film as well, isn't there? There's one which right. is just over two hours and one which is just over 90 minutes. And I don't think either of them have the exact same content as the soundtrack LP. I might be wrong there. I think you're right. It's interesting that, you know, the soundtrack LP is, is a more of a sort of cherry picked version of what's in the film. I'm just going to go over some of the artists that are documented on this film. And some names are familiar, maybe some names aren't. I'd just point out as well that obviously it's all live performances that were shot, I believe, mainly in Los Angeles, some in London, and some in a few other places. And there's no interviews in this at all. This is straight stage performance, that's it. There's no explanation as to motivation or, you know, inspiration. None of this shit. This is all filler. I mean, uh, no filler, (laughs) all thriller. Some killer, some filler, but there's plenty. You're both, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we've got, let's see here, the police, wall of voodoo, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, early OMD, Boingo Boingo, Echo the Bunnyman, XTC, the Go-Go's, the Dead Kennedys, Gary Newman, Joan Jett, Magazine, the Cramps, Perubu, Devo, Gang of Four. I mean, this is ridiculous, man. How, mm-hmm. like, you know, initially you're thinking there's not much here, but oh my God, there is. Yeah, yeah. X and a very young Toya Wilcox. Now that 
interesting because for those of you who are not familiar with Toya Wilcox, I think you are familiar with Toya Wilcox. <laughs> because Toya Wilcox, well, you can explain, right? See, it's funny you say that, Tim, because certainly in the UK at the time, Toya was huge in this period. I'd say 83 to about 80. Actually, maybe even like 78, 79 through to 82, 83. I mean, she was a proper pop star that had come from, I guess, I mean, I don't know, she wasn't hanging out with the Pistols, was she? But she was certainly, she was in Jubilee, the Derek Jarman film, which um, had a, a very sort of big punk contingent involved with that. I'd say she was closer to along the lines of something like Adam and the Ants. Yeah, kind of. Uh, do you know what really struck me whilst watching her performance here? It's, it's very theatrical and uh, it's very proggy. You can definitely sort of draw a line from uh, 70s prog bands through to the kind of stuff she was doing, which kind of makes sense when, uh, you know, as you probably all out there know, she's married to uh, Robert Fripp. Yep, um, and then the Sunday, and Sunday lunch. Their uh, Sunday lunches on YouTube are definitely worth having a look at yep. if you haven't at this point. And she was uh, also, probably a year or two ago now, I'm not sure if you were on the episode or not, but Mike White joined us and we talked about Breaking Glass with Hazel O'Connor. Right, Hazel O'Connor, yeah. And, uh, yeah, Hazel O'Connor was very similar in her kind of theatricality of the performance and so on. Yeah, but I, I remember as, you know, as a child, as a, like, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old, Toya was, like, constantly uh, in the charts and on top of the pops and in smash hits magazine and stuff don't know if that really translated to other countries maybe this was an effort to do that but certainly in the uk she was very popular so um when was the first time you really heard about Oregon music world right i wasn't aware of it at the time i probably only became aware of it through seeing segments of it in in various other places and to be honest i can't even remember what those places were but as a film i was probably aware of it 15 20 20 years ago but I only saw it for the first time maybe two or three years ago and this was actually only my second viewing uh, to talk about it now so yeah one of those things that you know I'd been aware of for a long time but just never had the opportunity to see it really because you know as we were saying it for a long time it has been difficult to see as you said earlier you know you don't want to put anybody's nose at a joint but let's get into the thick and thin of this here who are the artists or what performances really stood out for you good and bad yeah sure okay well the the good ones uh, do you know it's funny as I was watching it yesterday I thought I'm gonna make a list of each artist and write a one word description as we go right I ran out of steam after about six unfortunately but I think OMD I thought were very good Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. That was a really big song over here in Ola Gay. Oh yeah, I remember that. There's a lot of sort of energy in their performance. And, you know, bear in mind at the time as well, 81, using sort of synthesizers and electronics as well as live instruments like that. That was uh, a pretty new sound. It, it's funny because, you know, when you see the beginning, people wouldn't believe you today, like younger generations. But mm. when you see the beginning of like Depeche Mode or sure, OMD yeah, yeah. or um, Don't You Want Me Baby. Oh, uh, Hugh that, Lee. Uh, 
Human League. Human League. Yeah. All of yeah. that stuff. They were like almost like basic Casio keyboard stuff. Yeah. It was yeah, all totally. you know, yeah. really, really prime, simple, basic Casio keyboard stuff. So, I mean, for OMD to come up with Enola Gay, when that's, I just, I still remember that keyboard. Yeah, totally. Hypnotic, isn't it? It's yeah, real. Yeah, it's so simple. Yeah, no, totally. I thought they were great. I thought the Go Go's were really good. Glow, I wrote as my description for them but again a, a lot of energy they had this real sort of positive this kind of like fuck you we're up here doing this vibe to them do you know what I mean which right. I thought was really infectious good great song as well Dead Kennedys who were always good value <laughs> The irony of, of seeing a band like the Dead Kennedys. Right, it's funny seeing Jello Biafra so young, it's crazy. Almost like a child, isn't he, in this? Yeah, yeah. But it's just ironic that, you know, you see them in a film that's kind of promoting the idea of New Wave, whereas they would have spent a lot of time rallying against labels like that. Right, right, exactly. But great performance, Steel Pulse, I thought were really, really good. With my bow, disguised in violence from head to toe. A holler at the bar. Ku Klux Klan. Now let me go now. Ku Klux Klan. To let me go was not their intention. Great song, and uh, some guy dressed up as a uh, clansman running around the stage. Right. It's kind of fun. The Cramps, fucking That's... amazing. One of the all time great performances. Right now! That's the one for me. That sets the house on fire right there. And, you know, this is like 81, and they were, you know, I know they'd been around since, what, 76, 77? Yeah, yeah. They were just fucking untouchable. You see them, and it's oh, just perfect. Everything about it is perfect. Greatest frontman in the history of music, Lux Interior. I don't think I'm overstating that. No, no. One thing that gets me, though, is it's not them, but I don't know if you noticed this, but it seems like they use stock crowd footage. Yeah, yeah. Through all of the film, you see the same guy for about six or seven performances <laughs> going, yeah. So when you notice that the performances are all killer, but it kind of you know stilts it a little bit. It's you know, where almost it's takes like, you out of it, doesn't it? It just it right. makes it slightly unreal. But I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think that kind of works in a way. I don't know, but it is funny, like you say, when you know you see the cramps re- literally tearing it up while they're playing tear it up, and then it cuts to the audience and it's like some guy with highlights in his hair and a perm and a mustache stash and a sweater draped over his shoulders just like you know really getting into it oh one guy looks like the drummer from boston with a big fro is this the yeah definitely not the same concert man no 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 yeah cramps amazing au pairs amazing
great song, great musicianship. Underrated band, I think. I think Gang of Four get a lot of the plaudits, and I think the Au Pairs were doing a very similar thing as good, if not better. Great, great band, great performance. Perubu were amazing. David Thomas is just, he was on top form, just fantastic. There are artists in this film that are really going all the way out and flying their freak flag and doing their thing. And Dave Thomas is no exception. More so than most, I think. In this, oh, yeah. Right? He's, but I love, yeah. I love the beginning. And he's just like, I hear the birdies. <laughs> I hear the birdies. The birdies. Yeah. I hear the birdies. You know, and, he's, and he's just does not care. He looks more like a, a tax assessor. Yeah, yeah, like an accountant or something. Yeah, like an accountant up there in a three-piece suit. He commits to what he's doing. I mean, obviously, it's an act, but he's he's committed to it, and he's believing it, and he's performing it. Amazing. And, of course, you know, they're a, a great band as well, so musically it's fantastic. And, and again, one of the more out-there weirder entries in, in this film, you know? There's a visual element to a lot of music, but, you know, for example... We'll get into Klaus Nomi. <laughs> yeah, but, okay. But, but with Ubu, they were more like performance art. It wasn't so much about the visual aspect of it. It was about the performance. Like, the whole not thing. Just, yeah. yeah, the whole yeah. thing. Not just a musical performance, but just what they were doing. They were creating their own art. And you almost get the impression that they'd have been doing this even if there was like two people in the audience. It wouldn't exactly. have they were just They were there in their world doing their thing. And then you get guys also that fall into this kind of thing, like John Cooper Clark. Round the block, against the clock, a tick tock, tick tock, tick tick tock, running out of breath, running out of socks, rubber on the road, flippity flop, non-skid agility, chop chop, no time to hang about, a workout, El Fanatic, a workout. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing his spoken word. Yeah, again, he's committed to his aesthetic and his performance, isn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And considering he is just up there reciting poetry, I mean, to do that in front of a large crowd there to see sort of noisy, upbeat punk new wave music, and not only to do it, to do it well and have the audience respond to you is, is something else. That's pretty fucking punk rock, if you ask me, where you get a whole crowd that's just like, kill, destroy, man, this guy's like, I'm going to read you some poetry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's like, fuck you, man, like, we don't want fucking poetry, and no, I'm going to give it to you, you know. You know and you're going to like yeah. it, yeah. And you're going to like it, yeah, exactly. wanted to quickly mention a couple of others Devo were uh, as you expect fucking great super tight musicianship and a really good kind of stage show Gang of Four were really good as well Yeah. 
you know, it really struck me whilst watching them here that Steve Albini, in most of his bands, Big Black and Rape Man and Shellac, totally just stole the guitar sound and guitar style from Gang of Four. Just that kind of scratchy metallic sound, you know? That's funny that you mention that because, like, the beginning of, uh, not to go off on a tangent, but uh, the Big Black song, Kerosene. Mm, yeah, yeah. The beginning of that song, that it totally sounds like Gang of Four, yeah. Absolutely does, yeah, yeah. And X were the other band I wanted to mention. I, I mean, I, I love X anyway. They were just shit hot here, totally on fire. And I just love the way that Xine and John sing together, the way they sort of harmonise around each other. Just works perfectly for me. found that they had this whole Bonnie and Clyde thing going on. It's weird because it's almost like two characters out of a hard-boiled detective novel. It absolutely is. You can totally see that, can't you? Yeah. For me, there's a couple of things that really stuck out. Magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love Magazine. I thought they were great. The Flesh Tones were a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got to see them live much later. They're still playing now, aren't they? Are they still around? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Peter Zaremba, I think, I'm not sure he's got health issues or not, but, I mean, I remember seeing them back in the 90s, and they were a blast. And the one performance, too, that I think with the music that still sticks with me, Gary Newman down in the park. I'm glad you brought this up. I was I was going to mention this. This is kind of one of those legendary performances and kind of for the right reasons, but also kind of for the wrong reasons. I mean, it is a proper spinal tap moment. I think he, uh, for people who haven't seen this, he comes out on stage in a, uh, the, the stage is like, you know, swathed in loads of uh, dry ice, super uh, smoky. And he comes out in this kind of little electric car, which sort of just looks a bit like an electric wheelchair with a car body put over the top or something. And he, he sings the song, basically just driving back and forth around the stage. It's not a massive stage. He hasn't got far to go. He can't pull any real manoeuvres. Yeah, it's one of those kind of what the fuck moments. Having said that, the song's good and the band, who was sort of on a riser in the background playing, are really good. I had a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago saw Gary wow. Newman play. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. And he played that. He's still playing it and it's still amazing. You Do know? you think he's still got the car he's driving around in? I don't stage? know. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, he's getting up there in age. I mean, he might need a little motorized scooter, you know? I think he probably would at this point, yeah, yeah. But it was certainly, it's, it's a memorable performance, isn't it, for whatever reason. And what's funny, too, believe it or not even, is uh, the police in this. How can you say that you're not responsible? What does it have to do with me? What is my reaction? What should it be? Say what you will about the police, the later stuff, the early stuff, they were considered part of the pop movement too. Absolutely. And for a three piece, it's amazing. 
when you consider like Andy Summers was playing blues and playing other stuff before the police, like he was never really a rock and roll guy. But when you see the combination of him, Copeland and Sting, you can't get much tighter than that. They're really dynamic musicians together, aren't they? I mean, again, when I was nine, ten years old, the police were huge. I mean, they were this was just before they became worldwide superstars, I guess. But those uh, al- albums, uh, what was it, Outlandos, Diamore and Regetta de Blanc and so on. I had all those on cassette and all my friends at school had them on cassette and we were just obsessive about them. And, you know, you listen to that stuff now and it holds up. And it is pretty much better than anything that any of them have done since. Oh, yeah. Everybody thinks of them for Roxanne and, you know, the bigger hits. But for me, I think the first thing I ever heard of them was uh, Me and My Camel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, Walking on the Moon. Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, it was just the earlier stuff. Actually, believe it or not, the police for a couple of years toured almost a pre-Lollapalooza called The Police Picnic because it was two years in Toronto, just outside of Toronto, where the police headlined and I think it was Elvis Costello, Joan Jett. I think it was uh, The Specials. And Killing Joe played the oh, one. Wow. So, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? But the police were the headliners. Do you think that the footage of the police in this film, not the first song, that seems to be from a different venue, but the last couple of songs seem to have been filmed at some sort of package deal or festival type thing? Because that's uh, it's in some kind of amphitheatre somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. And also the performances from, I think it's Scarfish and UB40 and XTC and maybe another band I can't remember which one but they all seem to be playing in the same place and right at the end they all sort of come on stage together so I wonder if that was one of those kind of police picnic type deals I don't know if they did any of the other shows outside of Canada but I know the two two years in a row they had the police picnic there's only one kind of performance in all of this with all the artists to me that really stands out as not really belonging Okay. What do you think? Is there one that you saw that you're just like, well, what's this doing in here? The one I kind of felt like that, maybe Surf Punks? seemed a little uh, one joke idea so I'm surprised they sort of made it into something. To me, it was John Jett and the Blackhearts. Oh, okay. All right. Not to say that the performance was bad in any way, shape, or form, because it's not. It's just the fact that they were just like a straight rock and roll band. Yeah. Like Bad Reputation, it's a great song. They blast it. It just seemed out of place to me compared in comparison to, you know, all the other kind of eclectic stuff that's the lineup. I guess in a weird way, Joan Jett was kind of part of the old guard by this point as well, having been in The Runaways and done solo stuff. So, yeah, no, I, I see what you're getting at. Like you say, the performance was fine, but, you know, you wouldn't have missed it if it wasn't in there you know uh, Noel Fielding from the Mighty Boosh right yeah I think that he stole his look completely from Joan Jett in this film <laughs> look, look at a picture of them both side by side and uh, tell me what you think the guy who kind of goes the furthest in all of this to the you know utmost uh, end of the spectrum is Klaus Noel yeah <laughs>
explain Klaus Nomi, Bernie, to people who are not familiar? Okay, well, musically, it's got that... I would almost say he's similar in a way to the sort of music that Toya's band were playing in this. It's got that sort of proggy, theatrical feel to it. Not a particularly memorable song, but Klaus himself is, I guess he sings in what you would call an operatic way. Yep. Um, again, very theatrical, uh, strange makeup and haircuts. Just a strange looking guy in general, to be honest. And he has kind of, you know, dancers and a kind of stage show and stuff going on. So I, I think in that respect, he kind of he sticks out like a sore thumb in comparison to everyone else in this, whether that's a good or a bad thing. You might have seen Klaus Nomi actually, believe it or not, on Saturday Night Live. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Backing David Bowie as one of his backup ah, singers. OK. All right. Bowie does uh, TVC15 live. And I think he actually toured with Bowie for a while as a backup singer. But uh, Klaus Nomi is almost like, imagine an effete kabuki performer singing Madam Butterfly over disco. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's kind of something like that. But, I mean, you know it when you hear it. And to see this guy for the first time, you're not going to forget it. I do think, I don't know, This it sounds a bit unkind, but I, I think it was kind of a shtick. It was about the performance and it wasn't necessarily about the music. I mean, I can't imagine anyone seriously buying a Klaus Nomi LP and actually listening to it. Do you know what I mean? Right. Is, is that a bit harsh or not? I don't know. Well, I think I, I would really compare him and I don't want compare but like uh, somebody who came out of the late 70s like Joe Bryath. Sure but I, I think someone like Joe Bryath musically was just a bit more interesting. Uh, I don't know I, I guess in, I don't really know enough about either of them but just going on what I've heard Right. He seems like a definitive 1980s uh, icon Yeah sure. You know just the whole lot If you've ever seen the Venture Brothers he shows up on the oh, Venture really? Brothers Okay. Yeah as one of the henchmen for one of the guys because there's like Iggy Pop and Klaus Nomi and then forget what else but it's really funny so what was your least favorite performance here well i'll be honest the Klaus Nomi one was was up there for me <laughs> yeah i'll be honest i don't have much affection for bands along the lines of chelsea 999 who were both in this i just find that stuff just pretty boring it's, it's very sort of meat and potatoes pub rock version of punk rock it's pretty basic and you know there's energy there and stuff but just they're sort of boring songs for me so i didn't particularly like either of those the surf punks as i say i, I felt were just kind of like a one joke band i'm surprised they even made it into this and their uh the performance as well was a little women in bikinis some guy trying to wrestle a woman's bikini top off was a little bit and we kind of be on that at this point but then this is 1981 not that it makes it any better john otway i've never been a particular fan and again an interesting performance but didn't really do it for me and splodgenesima bounds or whatever they're called they're, they're always kind of a joke right anyway ironic that they're singing a rolf harris well not ironic but funny they're singing a rolf harris song here and when you consider what happened with rolf harris and how uh, how that all turned out no i mean there's no outright bad performances in it no. do you know what i mean but some of them just connect with you and some of them don't what about you what was it athletical spears Oh, uh, yeah, Spiz, Spiz, uh, Spiz Energy, I think, they yeah. changed to, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Nothing memorable there, yeah. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting with this is that there's kind of a balance here between West Coast, California, New Wave and Punk, and then the English end of things. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, like, obviously, like, the cramps were not from the West Coast, but there's a lot of stuff. Like, like for example, Wall of Voodoo, we're out of California. Oingo Boingo, we're out of California. Well, X, obviously. The yeah. Go-Go's yeah. X. But then you had more East Coast stuff, like Peribu, Devo. Yeah, yeah. And, and the cramps and the flesh tones, you know. So, yeah, like, I think it's a fair representation. You know, for me, American punk, whether it be the West Coast stuff, the Los Angeles stuff, the New York stuff stuff coming out of Ohio or whatever has always been infinitely more interesting than the kind of the British stuff the homegrown stuff the you know the Sex Pistols the Clash all that stuff really you know I can understand in context how that was important and the changes that were going on but musically I've always found that stuff not that interesting pretty dull and I just wonder if it's almost the, the exoticism of listening to a similar thing from somewhere else like maybe people in the States are more interested or, or find British punk rock from that period more genuine or interesting than what was actually coming out in the States at that time. I don't know. Perhaps that's just me, but... Not to throw stones or anything, but, I mean, I remember back in the day there was a term, postcard punks. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. And I think that when you see, like, The Clash, they were more fashion-oriented, and The Pistols were more fashion-oriented as much as they say they weren't, but then you get bands like Killing Joke, sure, or bands like Joy Division that were just like establishing their own kind of identity you know and not so much about what they were wearing yeah yeah i guess it's you know it's, it's always the case when you have bands which are popular or known you're going to get a lot of people doing the a similar watered down version of, of what they do and i, I right. think that a lot of uk and like what would be termed i suppose that sort of first wave uk punk is people doing their own version of what the sex pistols were doing a lot of it's pretty dull i don't know i think with me as well it's an age thing if i was five years older i might have a different feeling about this but for me like post-punk has always been more interesting than punk but then there was there were some things that you can't replicate for example i can't think of many uh cramps cover bands or devo cover bands sure yeah yeah, yeah. it's funny because it's like even with bands like the ramones it's like yeah you can play those songs but you ain't playing it like that that's right you know like you can you know you can learn the chords but no one's gonna play it like that unless you're them yeah i mean this is the kind of thing you can talk about for hours isn't it it's 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 a mixture of inspiration talent or lack of talent or i mean how do you define these things you just can't you go around in circles but you know it when you hear it don't you right so here's the question that i'm putting out to you bernie is that obviously you know from us talking about this there was a lot of enjoyment we got out of this but is there enough here in the complete package to really urge people to go and suss this out or is it just an archive i don't know i think so i mean if you've got any interest in punk post-punk or you know again the term new wave music from that period in the early 90s this is a pretty good cross-section of american and british bands and i think what makes it good i mean when i initially watched it and saw the lineup i kind of thought well i wouldn't put that band in there and what about this band why isn't that band in there but when that's taken out of your hands and it is just this cross-section that's put together in front of you i don't know it kind of makes sense it works i think what's a real trip to me is that consider this right all these performances are almost 50 years old yeah right i know editors insert it's 40 actually now if you think about that okay yeah think like 81 okay 50 years before that was 31 (laughs) 
<laughs> it's insane, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And I mean, and it's, it's insane how so much of this music is still, like I say, it doesn't age. The good stuff never does, does it? Good art no. is good art. Good music is good music. Yeah, yeah. I will say, if I've got a criticism of the film, and it's only a very tiny one, I think it's possibly a little too long. Having said that, I did watch the two-hour version. I'm not sure how the, the hour-and-a-half version plays, but after about an hour and a half I was flagging a little bit do you know what I mean right right because it's just bang 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 in your face and you don't get much of a chance to sort of catch your breath but then I, you know that's the nature of a concert film isn't it but for me personally I could have done with it being a little shorter I mean I don't think it really needed those two other police songs at the end that was... well I was about to say like they were the ones who basically got the majority of the spotlight because Gang of Four they have a couple of songs but there's not a lot from anybody else though like I'm more than one song yeah, I'm not sure how it was put together in terms of filming, whether they invited bands, a couple of bands to play in certain venues and then filmed a few songs from each, whether they filmed entire concerts and just took one song out. I, I really don't know how that worked with this. It's difficult to find out much info about that. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of, of info on shooting and, and so forth out there. So I guess, like I said, it sounds to me like both of us are on the same page. So I think we... We can both highly recommend this as Absolutely, something yeah. to look out for. And uh, hopefully, you know, somebody, I can see somebody like Rhino putting this out in the yeah, future. Yeah, I think it, it would be nice if it is a rights issue. It would just be nice if someone could uh, get that sorted. I could see a nice box set here. I, I wonder there might be other footage that was shot and not used. It could be like when they reissued the uh, Decline of Western Civilization. They could do a nice little two disc special edition of this, and I'd be all over that. To tell you the truth, full disclosure i've never ever really been 100 percent a fan of the concert film because unless it's done really well for example the talking heads you know stop making mm-hmm. sense it's, it's incredible because you know just the way it's shot but generally i find concert films are like cooking shows to me it's <laughs> yeah. like you can see it but you can't smell it yeah 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 you're not consuming it in a, in a full manner you know you're just watching somebody else go through the motions of it you've been to a lot of shows over the years tim and and i think you'll agree it's actually being at a show and being part of a crowd watching a band on stage there's that kind of communion that relationship that energy that you get in that situation which is impossible to replicate just by watching a recording or listening to a recording of it they're two different things aren't they completely and it kind of goes back to what we we're saying earlier about stock footage of the crowd where the cramps are just tearing the place down to the floor and the crowd's just kind of like yay i would have rather seen people just you know, jaws on the floor yeah yeah pants meet <laughs> shit you know just like what the hell is like oh my god they're seeing the second coming but anyway, I just want to briefly, before we end today, um, we've got another little film here to talk about Dance Craze. The music that changed the world. Together for the first time on the big, big screen, Bad Manners, The Beat, The Body Snatchers, Madness, The Selector, and The Specials. Here it is. Dance Craig. If you're not in the mood today, step back, grab yourself a seat. This might not be uptown, Jamaica, but we promise you a dream. 
And this is a ska, again, I don't want to call it a documentary. It's a concert film. came out in 81 out of England, and it was basically a showcase of what was going on in the, the whole two-tone ska movement. I was going to say, time. it's the two-tone scene, uh, again, around that time was, was huge. So, looking back, it was a, a golden age, man. The charts were full of stuff like that. The oh, yeah. bands that are in Erg, and the specials, and the beat, and Madness, and the selector. Bad Manners. Yeah. Bad manners, yeah, yeah. This was, you know, a showcase of what was going on at the time. What you're just saying about how, you know, everything was in the charts. One thing I love about this film is that it doesn't use that stock footage of the crowd. The crowd and the audience are one and the same. It's more like shooting like a house party, the way they um, kind of encapsulate all the performances in this. And you could see, like, it was unreal, like, the audiences that a lot of them pulled in, like, with the specials and Selector. And, like, I, you know, there's a where you can see the definitive energy and the reaction that all these bands are getting. I was going to say, what would you make of this, Bernie? Bad boy, Tim. I didn't get around to watching it, I'm afraid. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so sell it to me, Tim. Sell it to me. What a lot of people don't understand is that if you're a younger generation, when you think of the term skinhead, mm-hmm. you know, it's got a negative connotation and the whole white supremacist, you know, Nazi loving bonehead connotation. But the original skinheads and rude boys all came out of a lot of the music that came out of the Caribbean and, and, and Trinidad. And the original, like, you know, Prince Buster and King Tubby, all of this stuff, and, and original and reggae. Dub and it was more of a bridge that could bring races together. And this was an incredible thing because, I mean, at this time, you didn't have predominantly just straight white bands, like, for example, the English Beat. selector and you know and a lot of these bands well i'm guessing pretty much all the bands in in this film i mean certainly that two-tone wave of stuff it it was all it was black and white people in the same bands yeah but it wasn't even an issue of black and white absolutely yeah just bands just music there's another documentary that we need to cover in the future about the rock against racism and i think that this was a huge thing that really at the time i don't want to call this for lack of a better term, poverty music. Well, working class would be a better... Working class, exactly. The working class movement, yeah. But a lot of it, like Northern Soul, brought together people of different ethnicities and walks of life and just the love of music. Well, we should uh, also briefly point out, Tim, that there was a big crossover between punk and kind of reggae as well. Oh, absolutely. The Slits, obviously, were uh, hugely influenced by reggae and you had, uh, obviously, The Clash were hugely uh, influenced by reggae and you had right. uh, Don Knotts is it who was quite uh, yeah, Don, 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 yeah. Don Letts Don Knotts that's somewhere Don else Nuts. entirely isn't it <laughs> Don Letts yeah. I'm so sorry Don if you're listening yeah, yeah, Don, yeah Don he, he was hugely part. involved in, in sort of both camps and you know John Lydon was a huge fan of reggae and he had bands like Black Uhuru too yeah totally that yeah. Were, you know crossover as well but the energy that came out of the whole two-tone movement well you ever see that film Rock Around the Clock in the 50s oh the one with Bill Haley yeah with Bill Haley yeah, right yeah, yeah when you're younger and you see that you think no man like this is a joke and 
you were saying everyone he was tearing up the floor like right you know <laughs> yeah you kind of snicker at it right but if you were there at that time they were burning the house down yeah sure yeah and it's the same thing with this is that when you see like the crowds like I'm talking shoulder to shoulder like a full hall with you know like Pauline from Selector you know just getting them into a friend like everybody mm-hmm. just po- pogoing and just singing every word word for word every song word for word you know and it's just like it's just infectious every single performance in this is like that it's just like I don't know if they just stacked the deck and just got the best of the best from what they wanted because obviously these are from different shows it just seems to me like every single performance this the crowd is just like in the palm of their hand and even even like early bad manners yeah yeah well certainly before they went into the the more sort of pop stuff they were totally committed authentic ska kind of band weren't they oh absolutely do you ever get the chance to see bad manners i no. a friend of mine who i used to work with he was a huge fan and he saw them a number of times i think but uh, i never got around to it i saw them in the early 90s and they played a small place in toronto and it's funny because like buster their singer if you can imagine like he looks like the Uniroyal Tire Man yeah. <laughs> and he's like this big boy he's a big big guy and re- with a refrigerator of a belly Yeah, he got up on stage and it was a Sunday afternoon the show in Toronto within two minutes the whole floor was full of people dancing there was no hesitation there was no warming the crowd up it was just like a light switch and I was blown away for a band from the early 80s 10 years later whatever in a small little place it's like they electrified the floor and everybody was just getting zapped you know it was unreal peeling people off the ceiling yeah these a lot of these bands are still at it i mean like the english beat just played here about a week ago with uh dave wakeling and roger and all those guys and the music's still great you can find this on youtube by the way i should mention just put dance craze movie and you'll find it but this one is a really nice slice of giving you an example if you've never really heard ska before or don't know a lot of the two-toned sound this is a great great cut of what it was like do you think does it make a good counterpoint to the uh to erg maybe make a a good double bill do you think oh yeah absolutely and again there was a a full album of dance craze that came out as a soundtrack believe that yeah and it was a big seller because i mean i remember working in record stores where we'd get this and it would be gone almost like the greatest hits you know just you know yeah everything you needed in scott instead of wanting to go buy the album you can buy this one album and get you know it's like if you like this you go out and buy all the albums but if you're not sure this is the best you're going to get I did notice I was just looking at the uh, details on IMDB about Dance Craze and director Joe Massett the film he made prior to this a few years earlier incredibly is Led Zeppelin the song remains the same yeah so that's kind of wild that uh from one uh, one extreme to the other that's uh that's kind of crazy yeah but i mean what's funny about that too though is that you've seen song remains the same uh, not for years but i have seen it but with that film they put in all these little snippets of like jimmy page turning into a wizard and, <laughs> and driving the race cars and all this you know stupid shit that has nothing to do with Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. whereas they try to be artistic with that and take liberties whereas with dance craze and i'm not saying this guy's a lazy director in any way shape or form but it's kind of like with this one it's like look point the camera turn it on let it happen that's it well you know 
76 the song remains the same 81 for dance craze and 76 is the proggy excess era and 81 is the sort of post-punk the scar kind of stuff and it's just like you say it's point and shoot you don't need to embellish it because it's it's all there on stage you know but there's so much energy mm. that's just radiating off the ball like all of this that it's just capturing it lightning in a bottle yeah but this is a fun one i really dug this a lot i'd seen this again years ago there was a channel the local toronto channel channel 79 and they played music movies primarily on late Friday nights and Saturday nights after one o'clock when people come back from the bars. Yeah, and I remember this being on television. That would be the perfect way to watch this kind of thing. In fact, that would be the perfect Friday night double beer. Bring some uh, beers back from the uh, the bar with you and a pizza and just go through Erg and go through uh, Dance Craze. Bring a couple of friends, have your own uh, dance party, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think the difference between the two, though, is that with Erg, for the, you know, the younger generation and those that love to do point and snicker there's a lot to point and snicker at with Eric whereas with Dance Craze it's all lean and mean there's nothing really in Dance Craze that you're going to say oh well, that's rather goofy or that's rather goofy I mean, mm-hmm. but with Eric yeah there yeah. are some, you know, there are <laughs> yeah. some moments where you're just like oh boy <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> a clip of uh, our brother Morris and our brother Skiz Kizik talking a little bit about Erg the Music War and uh, Skiz's upcoming and hopefully uh, illuminating documentary on Erg the Music War. So afterwards when we come back we'll talk about what we're going to be looking at next month. Welcome back to episode 96 of See Here Podcast, and I'm welcoming back to the show. I think you have to be the only person who's been more than once on See Here in your directorial guys. Welcome back to the show, Skiz Sizik. Hi, thanks for having me back. And just as a thing to put out there, we'll be having you back yet again within a month or two to talk about your new film, Sound Mechanic. I'm looking very forward to uh, watching that. But let's talk about the subject at hand, which is the film Erga Music War, which we've been discussing in the main part of the show. When I posted in the See Here group that we were going to be covering this, you went and said, oh, I've sort of been off and on doing a documentary for the last 20 years about Erga Music War. And I thought, right, okay, need to grab you, need to have you on the show to talk about this. I really have struggled to find much information about the film that wasn't just fan conjecture about it. So, you know, if you've been doing the documentary, then surely you'd have some interesting stuff behind the scenes. So I want to start off asking in true projection booth fashion, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? Interesting story about that. I found out about the album before I found out about the film. You know, I, I was a little punk rock kid and I would visit record stores all the time. And one day I saw the album on the front shelf in the store and it was a specially priced two record set. I think it cost less than a, a single record, but it was two records. And I loved compilation albums at the, at the time because I was really excited by all the new punk and new wave bands, but I didn't have enough money to buy all these records and hear them. 
So I bought a lot of compilation albums, and that enabled me to, to know what a lot of these bands sounded like. So I picked up Erga Music War, the, the specially priced two-record set, and uh, just devoured it. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. And it was it was my introduction to so many bands that became favorite bands that to this day are still favorite bands. And uh, just couldn't stop listening to it. Let's see, that would have been 1982, I guess. End of the summer of 92. 82, sorry. 1982, summer of 82. Probably in early 83, I was at a band practice and the bass player, my buddy Paul Lewis, said, you got to check out this movie I taped off a night flight the other night. And he pops it in and it's concert footage. And I immediately recognize, hey, wait a minute. These are all the bands from Erg. These are the actual recordings from Erg. You mean this is a movie as well as an album? And then to my surprise, there was even more bands in the movie than there were on the album, including the Dead Candies, who I just absolutely adored at that time. And since 1983, I, I've been saying that this album would have been the Woodstock of my generation had my generation cared more about better music. <laughs> you know, but my peers in 1983, they were all about MTV, and MTV was all about Phil Collins, and well, maybe not in 83, but you know, it was Michael Jackson, it was mainstream music. And at the time here in the States, there were only three bands on Erg that I had ever heard on commercial radio, and that was the police had had several hits at that point. Gary Newman had had Cars and Devo had had Whip It. At the time the film was made, the Go-Go's hadn't released a record yet? Uh, I don't remember when Beauty and the Beat actually came out, the actual year. I think it was right around the time of Erg, but they definitely weren't on the radio yet because when they finally were on the radio, I knew who they were. Right, right. You know, and to everyone else, it was it was a new band. But within a couple of years, a lot of the bands on there showed up on MTV, Joan Jett, XTC, Echo and the Bunnymen. So yeah, this album, for people like me who bought it when it came out, we knew a lot of these bands before they hit commercial radio. Some of those bands, I think, were already known here, or some of the artists were already known here, like XTC was never mega huge, but certainly by the time that English Settlement had come out that was i guess their moment in the sun in this country although we knew songs like making plans for nigel and generals and majors from before that so i mean yeah xtc would have been a known thing by the time murga music war had come out here actually one guy who frequently visited was uh, john cooper clark it seemed like he was down here doing something like every other year or something like that. He was a name over here, but I don't imagine that he would have been a big name in, in the States. I don't think he ever became a name here. I think he's probably best known here as the guy in Erg. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming back to your point about having bought the record first, when you bought this and you said you love getting compilations, did you realize that you were getting a live compilation or did you just sort of think these were going to be studio cuts or did you buy it with no perceptions at all? The album cover says unreleased live performance by so i thought oh cool you know that's just fine you know <laughs> these are all bands i would probably hope to see live one day anyway do you know what was the actual impetus behind the making of the film now you know besides miles copeland finding a way to promote the police and any other actor on the irs label do you know was that his only angle because there's plenty of acts in there which aren't on his label was this just a thing where miles copeland or michael white not that mike white <laughs> but michael white who'd produced the rock 
Rocky Horror Show and a bunch of other... Right. Li- I've just been amazed finding out about some stuff this week about him. But was it any of these guys just sort of thinking almost altruistically, wow, these are great bands, the world needs to know about them? What what was the impetus behind the making of the film? You know, if I have an actual answer to that in my research somewhere, I've forgotten what it was and I really probably should have pulled... I have a binder full of research <laughs> that I should have pulled out and looked through. If I remember correctly, and I forget the name of the director of the film, Derek... Derek Burbridge. That, yeah, Burbridge, thank you. If I remember correctly, it may have been him or it may have been one of the Copeland. Somebody was saying something amazing is happening in music and we, we need to document this. You know, we, we need to make a document of what's happening right now because this is really special. And it really is. And, and like I said, it was really special to me, but it was completely ignored by most of my peers, you know. So I'm really glad this document exists. It's now decades later and I still am telling people about this film that they've never heard of. And I'm like, how have you never heard of this? This was so important to me and we all like the same music. How did you miss this? Do you know anything about how successful it was at the time? I don't know that it had actual theatrical runs anywhere. I think it just had special screenings here and there. I'm probably wrong about that, but I seem to remember that it just popped up in town after town like they didn't have that many 35 millimeter prints of it. So it was just circulating from town to town, maybe for one or two screenings and then on to the next town. Since the VHS days, I mean, I didn't watch it back then, but I do remember seeing VHS tape in our library in the 80s. The film appears to have had a really spotty release on home media. And I think that what I saw this week was that the last time it had been put out was on DVDR on demand from Warner Brothers. Right. And and missing some songs. Right. Were there rights issues? What's been stopping this getting a release? Because it seems like you, you can find any number of really obscure music films that get quite celebrated and are put out either on streaming, you can find them on Tubi, on uh, home media or whatever, and something like this, which, as you said, your friends might not have known about it, but is considered really, really important. Why isn't this getting a release? Is it purely rights issues? Do you know? Uh, Yes. If I understand the story correctly, if I get it wrong, I I encourage people, go find the act, the artist in the film, Scayfish, go find his website and read some of his blog posts, because he's covered this probably explain it better than I can. But the rights were sort of screwed up in the fact that the artists were giving the rights to their songs to be used in certain formats at the time, which didn't cover formats of the future. So it was able to be released on VHS, cable, and Laserdisc. And that's all. <laughs> like it, 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 you know, the, the wording of the contracts didn't cover future formats. People weren't thinking about DVD or Blu-ray yet or streaming at that time. So whoever actually holds the ownership of the movie now and there's discussion about that too like Warner Brothers who put out that DVD-R didn't really have the rights to do it and that's why it was a DVD-R not you know mass produced but whoever has it can't really do anything with it without renegotiating the rights to every single song and at this point they probably won't be able to find some of the, the musicians and some of the musicians probably wouldn't renegotiate I do know that some of them like Gary Newman took his footage and some other footage from the same show and released that himself at one point. I feel like some of the other bands did too. And I I heard that in my research there, each band, some bands, the entire show was filmed. Some bands, three songs were filmed. So somewhere there is a whole lot of extras material that uh, I do hope that this album or this movie will come out on Blu-ray someday with a whole lot of extras because I would love to see more songs. Before we get into asking about 
your making of this film, which hopefully one day will actually be a thing. But you raise the interesting point there, because what was the format behind these performances? Because, I mean, we're seeing in the film, except for the police, because of Miles Copeland being behind this, getting three songs. Everyone else really gets just the one song. But we're seeing performances labelled as from Frisius and from London and from LA and maybe one or two other spots. So were these concerts put on like as multi-artist shows? Were they designed to be for this film or was it just Michael White and Miles Copeland saying, oh, right, these artists are going to be at this place. We'll negotiate with them for this film. Were these concerts put on specifically for the purpose of making this film? I think some of them were. You can tell that, you know, there's like five bands that were filmed at the same show in L.A. and and a handful at the same show in New York and a handful at the same show in London. The the amphitheater show that opens and ends the thing with the police, that was an actual tour. I think it was Police, XTC, Skatefish, and UB40, a band that isn't in the film. No, 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 Um, because they call uh, UB40. I think UB40's drummer comes on to play over Stuart Copeland's head. And and just like I thought, thought, all right, so that was a specific show or run of shows. Well, that was a whole tour. And I, I think that was the final night of the tour. And I feel like there was some importance in that that maybe started the whole life needing to document what was going on so they got the final night of that tour and then they shot the other shows i, I could be wrong again i should have checked my research before <laughs> talking to you but i mean i know the dates are written on the back of the album cover so if anybody wants to look that up and i feel like there was like maybe two nights in la that were shot but anyway yes a lot of these shows were put together in order to document all these cool new bands that all had some kind of connection to IRS or A&M or just the people involved were big fans of. So as we said at the start of this chat, you've been working on a documentary about Erga Music War and presumably about the tours and all that went on back then. So when did you decide to play detective? Was it because, you know, you were such a fan of this film and you thought no one knows anything about it? What made you start doing this and how easy or not has it been to get access to any of these musicians? How many were willing to talk about it? Okay. Where to start? <laughs> I, uh, it was the early 2000s, and I had a friend that started working at Warner Brothers producing DVDs and mentioned the possibility of a 25th anniversary DVD of Urban Music War. And the light bulb went, went off in my head that I want to make a short documentary about the film that could be used as an extra on that DVD. Of course, that DVD never came out, but I started working on this idea. I started researching like crazy. Like I said, I have a whole binder full of research that I did back then, you know, 20 years ago. And my goal was, I was already kind of busy making Ice Pick to the Moon, the film that took 20 years to make. Uh, So I didn't really want to dive all the way into this project. But my goal was whenever anybody from the film came to my area, I would try to line up an interview with them. And for a few years there, that worked really nice. I got the Flesh Tones, I got Steel Pulse, I got Devo, I got Gary Newman, uh, I got John Doe from X, I got Stuart Copeland from The Police, I got Dave Thomas from Pear Ubu. It was pretty cool. I, you know, just as many bands either ignored me or turned me down, but still, it's cool. I got to meet a lot of the people that were in this film. I missed that anniversary, which, you know, luckily the DVD didn't come out then. 
And I sort of lost steam because you know, word was getting around that uh, it couldn't come out, that the rights would never be ready. But still, every now and then, if an artist comes to town, I try to line up and, and inter- interview with them. And I've, I've just kept doing that ever since. One of the first things I did when, when the pandemic started and I was like stuck at home in lockdown, I got out all the old mini DV tapes that I shot these interviews on. And I put them on a hard drive. And it's like, okay, if I'm stuck at home, I'm finally going to make something out of this footage. And uh, I should say that the, the name of the film, it's its not going to be a feature length. It'll probably be like a half hour long. And, and the name I was going by was Erg Revisited, because that's what I'm doing. I'm revisiting Erg. And I was going to start putting this together. I got sidetracked by a bunch of other projects. So as far as I got was just getting footage off the, the mini DV tapes and trying to find the Devo interview. <laughs> it's, it wasn't with the rest of them. I know I have it. It's in my house somewhere but my house is kind of cluttered so i need to find that but the gist of the film is it's going to be a part essay part documentary where i explain the importance of this film not just to me but to musical history and then get into interviewing the people in the film get their thoughts on it how important this was to them you know it's going to be kind of weird to make because i know i can't really get the rights to anything from the film but there are ways around that you know there's this thing called fair use that if i follow the rules i might be able to use parts of the film very small snippets but i, I have it visualized and somewhere i actually have it all written out on paper how i want it to, to go just need some time where i'm not already working on a bunch of other projects to sit down and work on this and get it done rights issues are tricky and even fair use you know, I, I know a lot of filmmakers that feel like they can use whatever they want and just claim fair use, and it doesn't work that way. So there are rules to follow, and I plan to follow them. <laughs> you know, I definitely don't want to make this thing and not include samples of what it's talking about. Again, if any company is going to put Urga Music War out on DVD or Blu-ray, I would gladly offer up this short documentary as an extra, because that's why I was making it in the first place. Given that, as we discussed a few years ago, you spent so long on working on Ice Pick to the Moon and it did eventually see the light of day, I do have every faith that this will eventually see the light of day. You you work for the long run. I mean, the good news is, is I, I just finished Sound Mechanic and it's starting its festival run and I don't have my next project lined up, which makes Erg Revisited my next project. So... As long as I don't get suckered into making something else. <laughs> I'll, I'll be working on Erg or Revisited sometime this summer, I hope. Even though you say like you haven't sort of gone and consulted your notes in a while, but do you remember much about from your conversations over the years with any of these musicians? Was there anything that surprised you? Was there anything that you thought, wow, I had no idea about that? Yeah, across the board, pretty much all the the musicians I interviewed seemed to not think it was that important. It wasn't that big a deal to them. I was kind of surprised. I mean, to me, this is how I found out about them. Yeah, this was this was how I first heard them. This is what made me a fan of them. And to them, they didn't seem to think that it was that important. I heard stories of some of them that really didn't like the film. I think uh, I heard stories about Lux Interior was asked to uh, do something, wear something, or I, I, I forget the story. Again, it's in the notes. But he hated how the cramps part of it turned out, which is weird because that's the section that is, seems to be the most talked about. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it definitely made me a fan. You know, by coincidence, right now I'm wearing a T-shirt with Steve Lickenstaff artwork on. He did uh. the, the bad, bad music for bad people cramps album cover. And my cat Ivy is here right next to me, and my other cat Lux is on the floor next to me. So, you know, without Erg, I don't know that I would care about this shirt or have named my cats Lux and Ivy. But yeah, no, you're right. That 
segment of the film and I've only watched the film twice I caught the film a couple of years ago while we were talking to Alan Arkush about favourite concert films and I wanted to sort of watch a few other things there was a lot that was exciting about these acts and I confess that there are, you know, a lot of these bands were either not on my radar or not on my record collection at the time but I'd certainly say that the cramps were probably one of the most exciting acts in the film and that's saying something considering that there's a lot of very exciting acts in this film okay so yeah that is interesting to see that some of these bands didn't look on it all that fondly do you think that was as much because they were judging their own segment as you said with the cramps or just overall they thought no it's just a jukebox of random bands from the time yeah, it's hard to say. Some of them even told me that they didn't remember it. They didn't have any knowledge of having been in it, uh, <laughs> you know, which I just find hard to believe. I tried to line up, uh, I probably shouldn't say the people who turned me down, but I tried to line up an interview with, with one person who's from one of the bands, and she actually came out and said she has no memory of those times, has no memory of being in this film, has no memory of ever seeing it, didn't know her band was in it. And I'm like, I, really? It's just so hard to believe it, it. It hurts because, you know, as a musician in bands, I would kill for an opportunity to be in something like Erg. <laughs> you know? like, that would be like the highlight of, you know, that would be a sad highlight of my life. But <laughs> you know, I would hope that I would achieve greater than that. But still, that's something pretty great to achieve, to like not remember it or, you know, to just sort of blow it off like it's just not that important. It's a little disappointing. I mean, look, I'll probably go into this further when we record the main part of the show, but it just seems to me that what makes that film so important, not just because it's a gathering of bands which either had started to become big or were going to become big as the 80s progressed. But unlike today, where you can go onto Tubi or go through your DVD collection and see hundreds, maybe thousands of concert films or concert videos, whatever, many of them made specifically for TV. Uh, and this is a cinematic film it's it looks like a cinematic film uh, but there was not that much you know a, a few years before there was the last waltz uh and i'm sure you know there are a few other concert films on the time but not that many so this was in my mind a big deal not just for who they picked but for what they were doing they this mm. maybe didn't intend to set the tone for what was to come with hundreds of concert films but inevitably it sort of did well i mean another thing to think about is the timing i mean the movie came out right around the time MTV launched, you know, and MTV was huge because here was like a, a TV radio station where you could see the bands as well as hear them. I think if Erg had come out a year or two earlier, there would have been a bigger response to it because people were, I don't want to say starved. I would have been like, oh my God, I got to go see that. You know, if I, if I'd heard about it, I did find out that it apparently had a screening in Baltimore. I didn't know anything about it. I certainly wasn't there, but you know, even some of these bands were on MTV. So people were already watching their music videos. So watching the film again this week, I sort of thought, I mean, you know, a lot of these acts, they fit in the film. But for me, the most unusual moment was seeing Jules Holland. And I'm guessing it was in the context of just a moment on a squeeze show or something like that. But do you know, was Jules just happened to be there as a guest at someone else's show or was it part of a squeeze gig? I know there were other bands that played on these shows that didn't show up on the album or the soundtrack. I don't remember if Squeeze was one of them, but I think Jules was part of one of the tours 
scores. Because now that I think of it, at the very end of the film, while the police are playing So Lonely, and Jules comes in to play piano for that, so maybe he was part of that of that police tour, but it just seems so unusual. I mean, like, playing blues and boogie-woogie is really where Jules Holland's head was at, but he just stood out. I mean, look, I and I adore Jules Holland, and probably I'm more of a squeeze fan than many of the bands who actually appear in Ergen Music War, but it just seemed like a really out there moment in the context of the film. Yeah, I didn't know his name at the time. I knew of Squeeze, but I didn't know the names of the people in the band. So it it took me a while to, to put together that, oh, he's the guy from Squeeze. But yeah, that song, I remember hearing it being like, what, what's this doing on here? And then it, it really grew on me too, because I was like, this guy can play, you know? <laughs> this, this is actually really cool. And if I were at some punk show and somebody came out and did this, I'd be like, yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> That's something different. I mean, Klaus Nomi also. <laughs> Klaus Nomi's pretty different from everybody else. The Klaus Nomi bit, and I'll probably end up, we'll probably end up speaking about this in the main part of the show, but Klaus Nomi was someone who, until I watched the film, was completely unknown to me. But first thing, I looked at him and I thought, oh, are you good friends with Nina Hagen? Because really, they're both taking an operatic approach to punk rock. And I'm a huge fan of Nina Hagen, and I've introduced my daughter to her. She's become a big fan since. But yeah, that was another really unusual moment. And I, Look, over the years, I've gone and objected to the use of the phrase new wave as if it's describing a style of music. I mean, I understand we talk about this is a group of bands who drifted away from what was English pub rock or in Australia, Australian pub rock to something that was completely different. But a lot of the bands like, you know, the police was very different to what orchestral maneuvers in the dark were doing, which is very different to what Klaus Nomi was doing. But for years, people have gone and described New Wave like it was a style of music, just like nowadays they say, oh, alternative is a style of music and couldn't be further from the truth. It's just a group of bands that they weren't playing on mainstream radio. So they're all, we'll put it under this umbrella. And that's what made it all so exciting is they didn't all sound the same. I always say that about, about punk rock in the early 80s. I remember like here in the States, American hardcore punk rock, like 81, 82, there was a handful of albums you had to have. You know, there were Black Flag, Circle Jerks, The Misfits, Flipper, Dead Kennedys, Fear, X. And like none of those bands sound the same. Like you can tell them apart. And within five years, like every hardcore punk band sounded like the same band. <laughs> And so I, I would try to say, like, no, it was so much better before there became a uniform, before there became a sound. And and I think that's one of the things that Erg is is documenting, you know. And getting getting back to Klaus Nomi, mm. I was aware of him before Erg, but I didn't know his name. To me, he was the guy that sang backup for David Bowie on Saturday Night Live. Oh. Yeah. And when I saw him in Erg, I'm like, oh, my God, that's the guy from the Bowie performance. And so that put him on my radar. And actually, if you watch the, uh, the Nomi, you've probably seen the Nomi song, right? The documentary Klaus Nomi. I've not seen a documentary about Klaus Nomi separately. OK, well, seek that out. It's called the Nomi song. And I, I want to say they were able to use the clip from Erg. So uh, that's a good sign. Writing that down now. <laughs> So progression of the film now, you've gone and said that now that the sound mechanic is out and we'll be discussing that with you in a couple of months, how do you plan on progressing? I mean, you, I think we were speaking in the week and you said you've got all these separate 
clip. So have you actually started assembling it over the uh, pandemic into some into some sort of shape as an overall film? How do you want the structure to be? What's what's going to happen there? Uh, well, I did watch a bunch of them and made some notes, like who covers what and who has similar answers. You know, because I definitely thought it'd be interesting to string together all the answers where they say that it wasn't important to them. <laughs> You know, just because to me it's so shocking. But I did start writing, you know, it, like I said, it'll, it'll start out as an essay, you know, of my experience, why, how I discovered this and why it was important. And really, I think most of what I'm going to say in the film, I've already said here today. <laughs> so, so you can you can you can skip the film, I guess. But uh, no, it, I don't know. I'll probably uh, probably speak better. I'll probably speak better. My cat's trying to. Are you targeting a day? Do you think, well, I'd like to have this out a year from now or, or just I'll do it as long as I need to do it? Well, I'd like to have it out 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I, I've I've come to learn that when I make plans to make films, it's just not going to work out. I mean, Ice Pick to the Moon wasn't supposed to take 20 years. Uh, Sound Mechanic was only supposed to take two, but it took three. Whoa, that's a rush job by comparison, skis. Well, yeah, that the whole point. I guess we can get into this when we talk about Sound Mechanic. But the whole point of it was to make a film in two years because I just finished one that took 20. <laughs> and I just wanted to make something that was simpler and I wasn't devoting decades to. Look, thanks very much for your time. I yeah, thanks for having me. sincerely look forward to seeing Erg revisited, uh, see the light of day. Uh, I'd love to be able to put a lot of this film in context. No, thanks so much. I, I'm super glad that you posted something in, in the group. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had this chat, wouldn't have known about it. So, yeah, huge thanks, Giz. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. hope you found that informative and we're really hoping that skiz continues his upward climb with uh, erg and i can't wait to see what he winds up with in the end all right bernie so uh, what do you think we're going to be perusing into for the next month of sea year uh i'll be honest with you tim i have got no idea i don't know if morris has something lined up or whether uh, one of us are gonna pick a film do you know or i think we'll leave it at mystery for now yeah but, i guess uh, um, we can announce it on uh, facebook and um instagram and so forth so uh i guess keep your eyes peeled out there so i just wanted to thank everybody on uh, this easter weekend uh for two in with us and we hope you go out and find these films enjoy them as much as we did and like i said uh, dance craze is easily accessible through youtube erg you can find on archive.org so i uh, encourage you to go and suss them out and enjoy the sounds don't forget to join the facebook group uh, just uh, search see here podcast email address should you want to send us a missive uh, i believe it's see here podcast at gmail.com and we are also on instagram at see here podcast or one word so yeah if you want to call us out on anything if you've got any suggestions uh anything you like just uh, reach out get in touch all right with that being said thanks again and we'll be with you next month cheers cheers bye-bye Special friend. 
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.